Let's turn to Psalm 84. If uh, you have a Bible with you or a phone app or a Kindle, it would be good to have this uh, open in front of you. It's an amazing uh, poem uh, written by one of the sons of Korah, uh, the, the temple singers. And uh, he seems to be writing from a place very far from home. And that really is the, the, the context of uh, the psalm or the, the, the kind of environment in which these thoughts are, are penned down under the influence, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So here is someone who is really in a situation that he doesn't want to be in. Uh, in a situation that is far removed from, from what he ever imagined he would be in. Uh, I, I guess practically, you could, he, he's probably in exile, so very far from home in every practical sense, you know, geographically, seven or eight hundred miles uh, northeast from Jerusalem, uh, where he would have lived and where everything would have been familiar. Uh, he's in a different climate uh, up there. Uh, he, there's probably different food. There are different people, there's a different language, the geography is different, the architecture is different. Everything is different up there. Uh, and it's not where he wanted to be, I think that's the point. And he hadn't planned to be there. Uh, it wasn't his idea. He, he's, he's, he's probably been forcefully taken uh, from uh, Jerusalem, from his home, from his family, uh, with others undoubtedly, so not just on his own, but taken from the environment of comfort, uh, and the environment where he knew everything, where things sat well with him, and where, as far as he could tell, he was in the center of God's will. Uh, and Jerusalem was also an expression of uh, God's presence. I mean, that's where God's people lived, uh, and that's where God made himself known. Uh, that's where people worshipped God. And if you, if, if you wanted to be uh, in, the, in the very center of God's will, then Jerusalem, or Israel in the Old Testament, was the place to be. Uh, in, in, a, in a sense, if you were taken away from Jerusalem, the further you were taken away, uh, the, 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 perhaps the more anxious you became, that you might also be moving further and further away from God, you see. And so he's in a very difficult situation, far from home, and uh, as far as uh, his thoughts may go, far from God as well, uh, lonely uh, and out there, uh, distant from uh, the people and the places and the rituals. Uh, that he knew so well and was so comfortable with and so happy in. I just want to say that I think, I, I, I think on lots of levels that's, that's our experience, isn't it? I don't know your experience this evening. I've I, I think, been thinking a lot about the, you know, the Africans who were trying to make their way across the Mediterranean to find freedom in uh, Italy. Uh, certainly when the boat capsized, uh, they were in a place completely different from where they ever expected to be, uh, just struggling for survival at the very basic uh, level. Uh, but the reason they were on the sea and the reason they were in the boat and the reason they were traveling is because where they were was not where they wanted to be. Do you know what I mean? Uh, they experienced, they must have experienced so much suffering and so much inequality and so much justice and such a lack of opportunity where they were that they wanted to get out from where they were and into a place of greater opportunity uh, and a place of more comfort 
uh, and a place where they might be able to live their lives and, and offer the next generation, their children, uh, a better future. So, so, so in a sense, globally, I think, the, the idea of exile is a very modern one. I mean, we're going back here, you know, thousands of years to this psalmist. But what he's writing about is something that is happening to people politically and economically all the time today. But it also happens, it also happens practically in our lives, doesn't it? That we find ourselves in a place where we don't want to be or where we hadn't expected to be in, 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 some, in some kind of simple ways, but also in profound ways. You know, we discover suddenly that there's a, a major illness in the family uh, and that isn't what we'd planned at all. Uh, or in our, in our office where, where I work, uh, a couple had a, 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 young, had a baby uh, and the baby was born with an extremely rare syndrome uh, and uh, they were told she would live for six months. Uh, she lived for two and a half years and then she died. Uh, and it is totally, totally different, the whole experience of bringing Charlotte into the world from what they expected. Utterly, utterly different. In fact, Rob uh, uh, read a story uh, once, uh, which, which, which I think was meant to be uh, humorous. <laughs> Sometimes things happen that we don't want to happen, don't they? Like phones going off in services and stuff like that, so don't worry. Uh, he, he read a story once, which I think had a, had a lighter side to it, but it was trying to stress this sort of fundamental experience that the psalmist is talking about. And the poem was, or the story was, we went on holiday to Italy, but ended up in Holland. I don't know why they chose Holland, and that's where I disagreed with the story. But it was about a family who had planned and, and prepared and set everything you know, uh, uh, towards going to Italy. Uh, and uh, mid-flight, the captain said, something's happened and we aren't able to go to Italy, so we're going to uh, divert and go to Holland. So they found themselves in Holland, and it was completely unexpected. Uh, and the story just uh, explains what it was like to go through that experience. I, I, I'm sure Rob... And Amanda could relate to that incredibly well. So this is where the psalmist is, really, and, and it's often where we might find ourselves, too. And I, 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 what I think is fascinating about this psalm is that it's, it's very poetic, but at the same time, he's, he's almost setting out a manifesto. You know? uh, if, if, if that is your situation... If, if, if for whatever reason you're not where you want to be or you're not where you should be, then this is how you go about uh, kind of engaging with that. This, this, this is what it feels like uh, and this is the kind of harness that you need to put on uh, to make progress uh, in the world, in the kind of situations uh, that are like this for us. And so he, he talks about his own experience, but while he's doing that, he gives us some brilliant uh, guidelines, I think, uh, and in a way sketches out a kind of example so that we can look at it and say, is, is that what I'm doing? You know, or we can say, that's what I need and take it uh, to heart, either be inspired or, or challenged or affirmed in our own sense of direction. And, and he makes it very easy for us. If you just glance down through the psalm, you'll see that the word blessed is used three times. So in verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Uh, and then in verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you. And then verse 12, blessed is the man who trusts in you. So uh, he must have known that many people might preach on this psalm. And so he's given us three paragraphs uh, with three areas of thought that kind of interrelate and progress uh, as, as he unfolds uh, his own experience. 
Now, the, the first thing is this, I think, in, in verses 1 to 4. He, you'll, you'll see that he, he has this deep, deep longing. There's a tremendous sense of longing in his life. It's so, it's so powerful that it even affects him physically. You know, and, and th even that's not unusual, is it? You know, th th there is such a sense of longing sometimes that it, that it can make you ill or it, it can make you nervous or it can affect you. And, and here he talks about this deep, deep longing. His situation has brought him these longings. And so he says that his soul yearns and even faints and his heart and his flesh, verse 2, are crying out. Can, 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 do you sense the sort of the urgency there? Uh, and the depth of his longing. He, he, he's, he's, in, he's just passionate about his situation, you know. Uh, it, it, I guess you could say he's passionate about not wanting to be where he is or about making the most of where he is, handling the situation or getting out of the situation, doing whatever it is that God has for him. So there's this tremendous sense of longing. And I think that's what happens in our lives, isn't it? That God allows situations to happen to us sometimes smaller situations, sometimes bigger ones, and they push us into a, 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 an experience where we know that the resources that we have uh, aren't sufficient for us. And so we long for further resources, or we long for direction. Uh, and somehow he brings that deeper sense uh, of uh, searching uh, out in our lives. Jesus talked about the blessedness of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. But, but look, look, look at the direction of his longing. I think that's important, really, because G.K. Chesterton once said, and I think Spurgeon picked this up, the Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, once said, be careful what you long for or be careful what you wish for. You will be sure to get it, which I think our children never believed. Children don't believe that, but as adults, you know that that's true. Because the people who have a longing and a desire for something that is so strong, that longing and that desire leads them to action. And in the end, they probably get what they wanted in a sense, even though what they wanted turns out to be very different from what they expected it might be. Uh, but nonetheless, that happens. So, so be careful what you long for, for you will be sure to get it. This man has deep longings, but his longings are towards God. Uh, and I think that's fantastic. Uh, he says, how lovely is your dwelling place, or looking back to Jerusalem, my soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. He wants to be back there, but, this is the key, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That's the point, isn't it? My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Now we might say today, God, I really want to know you in my circumstances, where I am. Where, where, where we are as a church, where we are as a community, in this nation. Lord, we long to see you at work in this nation. That, 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 that is what he's saying. He's saying, I may well be removed eight or 900 miles from, from where God normally operates, but Lord God, even though I'm way over here, I'd long to see you at work here with me. I'd long to know your presence, even though I'm not in Jerusalem, here where I am, and I'd long to see you active and working out your purposes, even here, in this desert terrain uh, where I f currently find myself. And so his, his longing is deep, uh, and that's a challenge, I think, for me, uh, and his longing is focused uh, on God. It's so easy to become kind of half-hearted, isn't it, in the Christian life? It's so easy to become disillusioned, I think, as well, in the Christian life. God works in different ways and uh, not always as we expect. And sometimes he delays uh, and uh, hasn't come through 
in the way that perhaps we thought he had promised. And all these things, and the devil's work, and sometimes our relationships with other Christians, all these things compiling in. Uh, and it can be quite hard to maintain that deep sense of longing to know God in our own lives, uh, but also to see him at work uh, in our world today. Uh, whatever that world is, whether it's the world of my family, or the world of my community, or the world into which God has sent us uh, through the great commission of the Lord Jesus. So, so these deep longings. But I, what, what I love about these first four verses is that it seems to me the psalm, the psalm is a very good thinker. He's a great theologian. And so he, he seems to say to himself here, he seems to reason out uh, in, in, his, in his kind of own mind here, that, that it's appropriate to long for God, and it's appropriate to expect God to work. So he, so he can, you know, like, like William Carey said, expect great things from God. In a sense, he's saying the same here. He is expecting great things from God, but he's kind of saying to himself, it is right to do that. You know, and he does that by highlighting two theological realities. The first one is about the character of God, and the second is about the experience of God's people. So if you look with me at verse 3, three uh, he says there, Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. And you can see what he's thinking there, can't you? It's just beautiful. Uh, he, he, his mind's eye goes back to Jerusalem and to the temple. And uh, the temple would have, had, uh, would have been open, wouldn't it, uh, around the side. So, so wildlife could come in. I... <laughs> Uh, it, it doesn't happen here, I don't think, does it? But those of you who have been to other countries and worshipped in buildings that are open, it, you know that that can happen. I mean, I, when I was uh, growing up in Indonesia, we had a Komodo dragon come into our Sunday morning service. So it definitely changed the kind of nature of the morning service. Or, uh, or in Brazil, the mosquitoes in the evening service. You're sitting there in the jungle uh, uh, trying to have this service together and the mosquitoes are flying around and biting and, you know, you just have to react. So, so, but, but, but in Jerusalem, it was open as well. And uh, the birds kind of flew in, uh, and he remembers the sparrows and the swallows, and he remembers particularly, and, and th there's no reason why this couldn't be historically true, it's not just poetic, he remembers that there might have been a nest, a swallow's nest near the altar, and he sees that in his mind's eye. Isn't that beautiful? Can you, I don't know if that would be, I, I don't know about swallows, but you can try to imagine that maybe a swallow flew in here and kind of made its nest there. Well, this isn't the altar, is it? But uh, you know what I mean. And surely he's saying, isn't he, what Jesus said thousands of years later. If God allows a swallow to come into the temple where he meets with his people and to come to the altar, which is the place where God has provided sacrifice for his people to be brought back to him, if he allows a swallow to shelter there and to feed her young there, how much more does that altar say about his love for his people? Okay. That's the point he's making. He's saying, I may well be 800 miles from Jerusalem, but God loves me because he provided the altar. And in the altar, he showed me that he wanted to come to me and restore my relationship with him. He provided the altar and he provided the sacrifice. He brought me back to himself. So even here, far away, I know that he can be with me and that he can bring me back. It's a brilliant insight. And it really does kind of send your mind racing to the New Testament uh, and to what Jesus was saying there too about the flowers and about the birds and about God's love for us in comparison with those 
whom he clothes so beautifully and provides for so wonderfully. But then also, and this is the, the, the last part of the first paragraph, uh, verse 4, where the blessed comes out. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. And there's something here about God's people. You know, God's character, it, it bolsters him up. But uh, when he thinks about God's people, he's also encouraged. Uh, because God has interacted with his people and he's affected their lives in such a way that they're always praising him. <laughs> so he must be a God who is able to change people's circumstances and to bring about good uh, because the evidence from the testimony of his people is that they're ever praising him. Uh, and so he takes comfort from the character of God but also from the experience of God's people. And I think that strengthens his yearning uh, and particularly his yearning uh, that God would intervene, that God would speak to him, that God would uh, really come into his situation. So maybe we could put uh, over that first paragraph, uh, expect great things from God. Uh, and it's right to do that, isn't it? I don't know, I don't know your situation this evening at all, uh, where, where you're at in your Christian life, uh, or in your life, and whether you can say that uh, you, you, know, you know God in this way uh, to, the, to the extent that you can long for him with such deep longings and uh, by faith pursue uh, that longing uh, because of God's character and because of what you see about uh, his impact on his people here and, uh, and around the world. Uh, so let, let, let's be a people who long for him uh, in our situations and, and, and in the world where we see that things aren't what they should be and to know God present and active uh, in them. It's very quiet. <laughs> Shall we move on to the second paragraph? Uh, the second paragraph is a little more uh, bracing. I, I, I love the first paragraph. It's joyful, and it seems to me it's full of hope. The second paragraph is much more kind of a, it's hard work. And I, I, I wonder whether, do you see the first line there? It says, blessed are those whose strength is in you. This is the funny thing, isn't it? Not the funny thing. This is the really strange thing. You say, for instance, we, we have a, a team working in Brazil, uh, in the north of Brazil, in a city called Belém. And uh, they had a great vision for this estate called the Flowers Estate. It's the, it's, it's the furthest thing you can imagine from a flower <laughs> or from flowers. It's, it, it's basically a group of people who have collected around the city's rubbish dump uh, and they've built some, some accommodation there, if you could call it that, and uh, they, they, they walk into the dump and get their food from there and try to recycle stuff from the dump, and they live like that. And, and, and there's a team that had a real vision uh, to help these people, to help them with the message of Jesus, but also to help them practically. So, so the longing was there, you could say, uh, and the praying was there to see God at work uh, in this community. But, but it has to move on from that, doesn't it? Th that's what the psalmist, I think, is saying. You can't just sit there all day longing. You have to act on your longings. You have to do something. Uh, and, and, and so he, 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 this next paragraph is about the strength required to get underway in the things of God. So, you, so there may be a vision to transform this flower's estate. Uh, but the moment you set to, 
<laughs> you realize it's not as easy as you might have thought. Well, maybe you didn't think it was easy, but it's actually more difficult, even if you thought it was going to be difficult. So, so that team have encountered incredible difficulties, even some criminal difficulties, because there were gangs there, uh, and there was drugs there, and there was a, 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 a political counselor there who was in with the criminals. And so he didn't want to see this place changed either. And so there's, there's phenomenal spiritual and political and, and, and you know, uh, economic struggle to bring the gospel to this community. And that, I think, is what the psalmist is saying. You wouldn't expect this kind of instinctively. When, 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 you, ex when, when you long for God and want to see him at work in your life and in your community, and then you act on those longings, it's actually more difficult than you expected. And so he says, we need the strength of God. But his, his, his point is not just that we need the strength, but also that we act, that we move forward. And so he uses the phrase there, those who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. There's a resolve there. You know, they, they set out on pilgrimage. They, they take the first step, you know, whether it's the first step this evening of trusting Jesus for the first time, or the first step to battle sin in our lives, or the first step to speak to someone about Jesus. Here is a group of people, or here this man is setting his heart on pilgrimage. There's that resolution uh, to make progress in the things of God. But, 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 but notice what he says. This is very vivid in verse 6. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. So it's, 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 a, it's a very sort of challenging moment, isn't it? He, here, here, perhaps, he's thinking of pilgrimage. Uh, so from wherever he is, he needs to travel to Jerusalem. And, and people did that for the festivals, didn't they? Uh, and coming into Jerusalem, just before you got to Jerusalem, there was, there was part of the journey that took you through a section of the desert that was more arid, that was hotter than all the other places. And you had to travel through that. And in that valley, it seems that this is perhaps what the historians think, in that valley there were little shrubs uh, that were called backup plants, maybe balsa wood, uh, and in the heat of the, the, the midday sun, they would exude resin, which would roll down the stem, and it looked like tears. So uh, it became known as the Valley of Tears. Okay? Uh, and they had to travel through the Valley of Baca to get to the place of festivity, or to get to the place where they could meet with God and his people. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, for so many Christians, there's great joy in the Christian life. Uh, there's great peace, and there's great hope, and there's, you know, there's all that. But at the same time, there's also intense struggle, uh, whether that's personal struggle or struggle alongside others. Uh, and here, he talks about that, going through the Valley of Baca, the Valley of Tears. I, I was at a, 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 a... Ros and I used to work in Cambridgeshire. I, I pastored a church there. We, we worked with students uh, in student ministry, but, but part of the time, we all, I also pastored a church. And I, I was the only elder in that church for the first 10 years, so I didn't do a very good job of raising up a team to work with me, uh, which was my longing. Uh, but I went to a training day once where the theme of the day was how to raise up leaders in the local church. And uh, it, was all, it was all incredibly helpful. But during lunch, uh, they interviewed the, the leader of the day who had kind of seen his church grow and seen some new leaders come alongside him. And it was a kind of impromptu uh, interview. And... The, the first question was, what difference has it made for you to have leaders alongside you in the church? And his, fir his, his first answer right off the bat was, I cry a lot less. 
I just thought, for me, that was the best thing of the whole day. Because how many times have we cried? How many times have we been crying about the church? You know, that, 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 that some people who were members were leaving, or that there was a misunderstanding and we were all upset about it, or that there wasn't the kind of progress, or that someone came so close to embracing Jesus, but then moved away again. Or Do you know what I mean? Or, or, or whatever. The Christian journey is a journey that takes us through the valley of Baca. Uh, and here, the psalmist says, they make it a place of springs. So that valley of Baca... Is, is something we can't escape, but we have to go through. And, and, and in a sense, God is able to take us through it, and even in the going through of it, is able to bring a spring-like quality to our lives. So, so through the difficulties, through the tears, there is a kind of transformation of life. Uh, so by faith, we hold on to God, or He holds on to us. Uh, and in that process of of being fired up, I suppose, of being, being tested, uh, God brings new life. Uh, and so uh, it becomes a place of springs. This is one of the amazing things about the Christian life, isn't it? I, 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 don't, I don't want to go off on a tangent here this evening, but uh, I, I, I don't know what our world really has to say about suffering at all. Uh, you know, whether it's the Buddhists or the Hindus or the Muslims or the atheists or anyone, anyone. What, what do people say about suffering? The world is a place where we all suffer, and some people terribly. What, what is the answer for that? Who has anything to say about that? Here, this man is saying that the Christian's experience is that God himself came into our world, if we run forward to Jesus, came into our world and suffered profoundly, and he is able to be with us, not just to comfort us, but out of that suffering to bring a vitality that just wouldn't have been there unless we had been through it. It's very hard to understand, I think. But nobody else has anything, anything near as beautiful and as profound uh, in the world in, in relation to, to suffering, I don't think. So, so they make it a place of springs, but, but, but they also go from strength to strength. Just, just moving on here, there's a kind of momentum, isn't there, here, as they, as they go through and God helps them. So hear my prayer. I'm going to just skip to the end of this section. Hear my prayer. O oh Lord God Almighty, listen to me. O oh God of Jacob. Okay. Do you remember who Jacob was? I'm sure, of course you do. Uh, what, what characterized Jacob? <laughs> you know, his, rest, his wrestling with God. Yeah? And to be a good wrestler, you need strength. So this, this, this paragraph is framed beautifully by Jacob as an illustration of someone who wrestles and who came through with God uh, and, and, and by the, the importance of us needing strength to be able to live uh, our Christian lives. So, so, so the longing is there, isn't there? Expect great things for God. Uh, if you wanted to use carry for the second paragraph, you could as well, and you could say then, attempt great things for God, even though it's going to be difficult. So expect great things, paragraph one. Uh, paragraph two, attempt great things. Okay? This, is in, this is in the environment that we find ourselves in, each of us, in our daily lives. And then the third paragraph, quite, quite brilliantly, Really picking up at verse 10. I'll just read it again. I'm, I, I'm not going to say so much about this paragraph. Really just make one point. So we're getting, we're, we're getting close to the end. You're doing very well, very patient. Uh, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. and The Lord bestows favor and honor. And no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. I, I, I think he, he's, 
in, in, the, in the flow of the psalm, what he seems to be saying is, the Christian life or the life of a, a pilgrim, a believer pilgrim, the journey that we undertake is a journey that is marked by longing. So, 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 so there is so much that isn't there yet that we would love to see there. There's that longing, isn't there? But he's, he said to us, you can't just long, you have to act on your longing. So, so, so the pilgrim journey for the believer is a journey of action, of getting underway, getting involved and getting stuck in. But, but, but he seems to be saying at the end now, if all we ever do is long, <laughs> and if all we ever do is work, it's not right. There also has to be, in the midst of that longing, and in the midst of that working, something of the experience of God. Okay? We need to know who God is. And that has to have an impact for good on our lives. In fact, he says that his experience of God is really out of this world. Look at what he says. Better is one day in your course than a thousand elsewhere. And going on, for the Lord God is a son. He's unpacking it here, isn't he? What God means to him. For the Lord God is a sun and shield, and the Lord bestows favor and honor, or grace and glory, the old translation says. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Okay, so it's, 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 this isn't the kind of trade-off, it's just the truth. That if, you're, if you walk with God, God will not withhold anything good from you. Je Jesus is the evidence of that. And Paul the Apostle says that in Romans 8, doesn't he? If he gave us his own son, how will he not also along with him give us everything else? See, that's God's heart towards us. His generosity towards us. The favor and the honor that he bestows upon us. The fact that he doesn't withhold anything. We need to know something about that in our Christian lives. We can't just be longing all the time for different circumstances. It's good to long. We can't just be working you know, the, gr uh, the grindstone all the time. We have, to, we have to know something too, day by day, of the reality of who God is uh, as he meets us in his grace. There's, there's a friend of mine, I'll finish with this story. Uh, there's a friend of mine who, uh, he lives in Cambridgeshire. He was a Buddhist and uh, a top martial artist. Uh, he never competed for the world championship, but the world champion was with us once. And uh, they had a, they had a, a, a kind of off-the-record bout, and Paul beat him. Uh, of course, the world champion said this wasn't official, and it wasn't official, but he still got beaten. And for us, that was really wonderful. But Paul was a Buddhist, and he was a martial artist, world-class. And he had this incredible encounter with Jesus and was converted, wonderfully, wonderfully converted. Uh, and then he started reading the Puritans, which is really odd. So we have this Buddhist martial artist in the 21st century who's just, he became a Christian and read the Puritans, which is brilliant. He's so, so rooted in, in scripture and good thinking. But, but because he read the Puritans, and I think the Puritans perhaps were better than th at this than we are, the Puritans knew that it was important not just to have theology, uh, but also to have experience of God. And so they stress that. The right kind of experience, of course. Uh, and also some of the hymn writers like Wesley and, and Newton and so on. Uh, that, that, that Paul was kind of trained in that, you know. So even today, uh, sometimes I see him. I have, uh, we used to live quite close together. We we're far away now. But I, I, I saw him the other day in London. And I said to you, Paul, how are you doing? And he said, I am enjoying my God. <laughs> and uh, 
for most people, that would seem, if, mo if anyone else said that to me, I might think they were kind of nuts. But uh, when he says it, you just know it's true. He knows God and he's enjoying God. You know, John Piper, uh, delighting in God and all that. The, the psalmist is saying exactly that here. Of, of course there are struggles, and of course there are things that aren't the way they should be, but in the midst of all that, there has to be something too, doesn't there, uh, of that sense of wonder that God is present with us uh, and sharing from his incredible resources uh, with us. So blessed are those who long, blessed are those who serve, and blessed are those who know something of the beauty of God's presence and work in their lives. We're going to finish with a, a final song, and then I'll close in prayer. Uh, our final song is 751. 751. It's a hymn of praise, really, uh, thinking about the many, many ways in which God has been good to us. When all your mercies, O oh my God, my rising soul surveys. <clears throat>